And now, coming to you live from the Waldorf Room, high atop the legendary Coot Street Motel 6, it's Gary K. Wolf and Jonathan Strahan on the Coot Street Podcast! Yes, congratulations on losing the Hugo, Jonathan. Um, uh, I have your... Well, we... You have my what? I have your certificates. I forgot to mention that to you before we started talking. Your nomination certificates. I have two Yay! of them. Yay! I love losing Hugos. I've lost six and now. Really great. Hey, the Hugo Losers Party is a terrific, uh, always a terrific party. Um, and the thing about the Hugos this year, I mean, we may as well talk about that since I was there last sure. week. Yeah. Is well, first of all, what did you think about the results? Were um, there any surprises for you? Yes, there were. Of course, there were surprises. I think to me the greatest surprise and the one that pleased me the most, well, was that Joe Walton won the best novel. That genuinely surprised me. Not because I don't think it's a great book, not mm-hmm. because um, I'm not delighted that it won because I am, but because it wasn't the heavy hitter. I mean, like everybody sat there expecting George Martin to walk up and pick a Hugo, pick up a Hugo on absolutely on Sunday. I wouldn't be surprised though. I don't know that George thought he was going to walk up and win a Hugo, right? And he came in last. That's there were people there who told me that they were not surprised at Joe Walton. Although I was sitting in the front row, I was sitting in front of uh, I, I I don't know if people wanted wanted me to mention, but there were people in tears, just absolutely tears of joy that that had won because yeah. they were thinking the same sort of thing. Um, but then a couple of other people I said the talk said, well, she we underestimate the size of Joe's following, apart from the fact that it's a terrific novel. And I think deserved to win. Yeah, uh, it was clear when Joe was there the whole weekend that she is a very popular writer, not just because of among others, because of the earlier novels. Well, that and don't forget, she has a phenomenal uh, following and what presence on um, Tor.com. Yes, and I think that also helps because she's very pro- a very prolific reviewer. I mean, we don't actually think about her typically as a book reviewer, but she she reviews constantly. Yeah, you know, she, she's putting out like what two, three, four books reviews a week on Tor.com, and they're all interesting, pithy kind of comments about books in context from a reader's perspective. So um, it's it's really unsurprising that that she's well known, but that doesn't sort of you know come in on the same level as George Martin, who sells three hundred thousand books in a day. Mm-hmm. So that, I think that's the surprise, you know. Um, I've been quite, kind of interested in the response to the whole ballot. I mean, uh, there was no, okay, there was nothing that displeased me. So right out of the box, that's a good thing uh-huh. from my perspective. Nothing. There are some different choices I would make. Some that I was very pleased about. So yeah, I mean, I don't know if you want to quickly go through the actual results, or if if you know how you'd like to sort of have a go at this. Um, I think there were. I, actually, I don't even have the results in front of I, me. I I do. Of course you do. Um, I think every uh, it's interesting uh, being in the room or I assume watching it streaming is that there's a certain vibe that even if somebody wins that you you might have had two or three equal choices. I'm thinking, for example, of the Campbell Award mm-hmm. and and Lily, you uh, receives that on the basis of a very small body of work. She did. Yeah. But she is she is so delightful and energetic and was so completely overwhelmed by it that once. Uh, and, and and you realize that she's deserving of it on the basis of a small body of work. She'd be deserving. There were other people who were also deserving, mm-hmm. uh, but you can't you can't gainsay the huge importance that makes to her. And you wonder 
when you're talking about somebody that young, with that small body of work, whether something like that is actually going to help jumpstart a career. I, I have no idea. You know, I really don't know whether it'll do that. But it's immensely pleasing. I, th I think the thing I find perplexing, schizophrenic, something, I don't know, is the way people regard results themselves. Because this slate of winners has had a decidedly mm. mixed response out in the community in places. And we'll touch on and a little I've, bit of that later on. Yeah, okay. Well, I've not been following that as closely as you have because I've been – my mm. last house guest from the convention just left two days ago. Sure. And it's, a, it's interesting that it had a mixed response because it talks about the nostalgia and everything. And there's been quite a lot of almost bitterness around some of the comments that I've seen go past. Which really? Absolutely. I mean, there was a commentator out there who, you know, sort of said, in effect, glad to see sort of, you know, locust being listed as a semi-prosine, that that farce is now over kind of a thing. And I'm kind of going, hmm. one, it was nice. And I guess what I step back to is how you perceive awards and how you take them on an emotional level or whatever. Because on one hand, I take them seriously and I respect them and I like them. On the other hand, I don't take them that seriously. You know, mm -hmm. you know, so it's like, is it great to win a Hugo? Yes. Is it fantastic to be nominated? Absolutely. Am I going to sit there and cry in my beer or um, become bitter about who did win and what it says about the field? No, I'm not. You know, I, I kind of think that it, to some degree, for me, it sort of misses the point a little bit. It, it's, it's a celebration. And uh, do you think it's, you know, it represents the best? I, I don't know. Not always. Quite often not. Does that make it terrible? No. I mean, I saw uh, people tweeting you know, things like, the Hugos are broken. Science fiction is broken. Uh, it's all terrible. And I'm going like, really? I mean, I'm, ha I'm having a great reading year, Gary. This is a great yeah, reading I, year. I, I, I tend to agree. I mean, the stories. Well, I think I'd read, and I, this has not happened every year, but I think I'd read all the stories that won at least. Yeah. And I certainly had no problems with them. I certainly had no problems with what they represented to the field. I suppose there is always, uh, there's all, I mean, you, you can take any group of stories in any given year and use that as evidence of the absolute decline and fall of science fiction. Sure, sure. Uh, and I, I but, but I think in order to do that, you have to really um, have a, falsely inflated notion of what science fiction is. It's a bunch of stories by people who are trying oh, to write different stories. Okay. Yeah, but let, let, I, mean, I don't want to leap ahead too much because we haven't gone through the, the, the winners and everything. I don't know if we're going to. But let me ask you this. Um, to play devil's advocate, if you look at the slate of fiction nominees uh -huh. in this Hugo ballot, how many push forward the form of science fiction? Um. I want to find out what uh, – I know where you're leading to with this, and yeah. I'm not sure what you mean by pushing forward, forward the form of science fiction um, because I don't think that any genre can constantly try to innovate itself in completely new ways. I mean I, I, I can't think of any field of literature that, that doesn't repeat itself, that doesn't retread territory, that doesn't reexamine territory. Uh, and expanding the field might be doing something that's been done before in a highly innovative new way. Possibly. Um, but then are, is this group of nominees doing that? Are, are they doing things, you know, they're taking, say, traditional or nostalgic forms and doing it in a new way? Or is it radical? It's, it's, not, it's not a radical agenda in that sense. And, and I think that there are stories. And the other thing that confuses the Hugos in the last 10 to 20 years 
has been, uh, you know, the influence, the much increasing influence of fantasy stories. Yeah, um, sure. Which means that, and fantasy stories, I think you could say almost by definition, tend to look backward in form. Okay. Uh, if, if not in content. The Ken Liu story, for example, The Paper Menagerie, is in some ways a very old-fashioned ghost story, but it's handled in an innovative way with a kind of cultural matrix that we don't usually see in those stories. Okay. So is it something new? Yeah, I would say it's something new within the context of what it is. Okay, let me ask you this then as a, as a connection. Um, of this group of fiction nominees, before we even get to just the winners... Mm -hmm. How many do you think will be read in 15 years' time? I think that's, I, I, that's impossible to answer. And one of the reasons it's impossible to answer is if you think now how many stories we're still reading that were popular 15 years ago. I mean, the only way to answer that question might be look at the Hugo Ballot from, uh, you know, uh, from 1997 or whenever. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, we, we can do that because we have, the, you know, we have the technology, if not the memory. But um, my, I, I would say, not to sort of switch positions too much. I'm not sure many of them will be read. Is is, is my suspicion. Um, whilst I've got an enormous amount of time for the awards, and I've got a certain amount of time for the ballot. I think it's a good, strong ballot, uh, though it doesn't necessarily have all of my, you know, selections as the best of the year on it. Um, mm. I do think there's a bunch of stuff that will be swept away in the cavalcade of content that comes out endlessly these days. Well, I think there are two ways that stories get read years later. One is if the story just hangs out there by itself as a complete classic story, apart from anything else we have to do or say about the author's work. Uh, Flowers for Algernon, for example, is yep. a classic story. It reads for, yep. it, but it's not being read 15 years sure. or 20 years or 50 years later because of Daniel Keyes. It's basically why Daniel Keyes yeah. is known. There well, are stories like, and here's my argument, for example. Yep. About, let's say the Kid Johnson novella. Mm -hmm. I think Kid Johnson is on her way to being a major writer. I, think I she's, agree. And in 15 years, she, a, a story by her will be maybe not like reading a 20 or 30 year old story, but like by Le Guin is now. But my point is that a story can be read 15 or 20 years later because it becomes part of the works of somebody who emerges sure. as a major writer. Oh, I, I think uh, Kids Johnson will be being read in 20 years' time. No doubt about it. And I think that the collection that this story is in, I think it's in it, uh, at the River of the Mouth of Bees, will be around uh, and people will still be talking about it. Absolutely. Yeah, at you know, at it, the Mouth of the River of Bees. Sorry, okay. Uh, <laughs> anyway, something like that. Uh, I'm not sure, to be honest, I'm not sure about this particular Capulinti uh, story uh, because it seems to represent a step forward in her career in terms of yep. being science fiction. Um, but if her, I don't think that's where her career is going to be. I don't think it's going to be considered one of her major works in 15 or 20 years, but it's very popular this year. Yeah. Well, okay, let, let's do a very quick, just, just sort of so we've done it, I guess. Quick run through the the, you know, the, the, the results. We won't go through everything, but uh, Lily Yu picking up the Campbell is wonderful. I have to admit, would have been equally happy to see Karen Lord win, who we both love very much. So, you know, uh, sincere congratulations to her. And, of course, no pressure at all for the next story. No, not at all. She must be sitting there going, I just don't know if I can sit. I wonder if she's going to go all... Um, uh, catcher and the Rye guy on us and go, I can't, I can't do any more. Yeah. Uh, Maureen Starkey for fan artist. I don't honestly have an opinion, but congratulations to her. 
Uh, I would have thought that all the people who are looking to the future would have been happy to see Jim Hines pick up his fan writer award. I um, think he's doing something innovative, and his, yeah. it, it's, uh, it's, it's that does strike. I, I usually don't know anything about the fan writer award. Yeah, and um, his 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 work is something I had had brought to my attention, and yep. strikes me as being something new in fan writing. Yep. Uh, best fan, uh, fan cast, I think. Sincere congratulations to our colleagues at SF Squeecast. Uh, you know, Paul mm-hmm. Cornell and Mira Grant and Kat Valenti and Elizabeth Bear and Lynn Thomas, I think, is and everybody else. So congratulations to them. I do Excellent. note for the record, we came in second in the actual nominations, Gary. So we're just not and, widely enough known. Well, we'll just have to do something spectacular. Because we won't point out that we actually came in below no award in the total votes. That would be bad. That would be bad, yeah. Um, in best semi-prosine, congratulations to our friends at Locus, our colleagues at Locus, to, to us at Locus, mm-hmm. um, because that that really pleased me an enormous amount. I really was. You know, the fact that it's the last time they're ever going to be able to win the, you know, be up for the Hugo, last time they'll ever win, the fact they took it home is a great thing. So that was Somebody great. Somebody was pointing out to me that most of the, I think, I don't know what the actual figures are, and I didn't check it out, that something like, Four out of the nominees for Best Semi-Prosine are now disqualified. Yeah, something like that. Um, so, we'll, we can talk about that in a second. Uh, yeah. Because there's something else to talk about. Uh, John Picaccio winning um, Best Professional Artist. Sincere congratulations to him. That was great news. Um, I thought I thought that he was obviously I mean, incredibly delighted. Best yes, he was. He was. And, and Betsy Walheim. Well, hang on. Best Editor Short Forms next. Oh, which is, Sheila, which, is, which is Sheila, Sheila Williams won her second consecutive Hugo, and I think is yes. settling into a, a home run unless there's a sentimental push for Stan Schmidt next year in Texas. Right. Because that will be his last year of eligibility, really. Uh, so, you know, and after 450,000 million years of consecutive nominations, there may be a feeling that a valedictory award would be nice. I don't know. But sincere congratulations to Sheila. Very well d- deserved. Then Betsy was a delightful thing. You're right for long form. Be- Betsy Walheim. That, that was she terrific. She pointed out during her speech the first Walheim ever to win a Hugo, I believe. Yes, um, possibly the as, first as one. Some deserve one. Well, yeah, and, and the <laughs> thing is, she has. Well, this is this says something about Daw Books as well because mm. I keep thinking in mind they published Two Fierce Death. You know, they're, mm-hmm. they're they've shifted under her leadership they in a have. way that. Uh, that, that makes people again. I've seen some snarky remarks on the web, which are not necessarily untrue about her father's reputation yeah, yeah. Was, uh, not paying writers on time and so forth and so on. But I think what she's actually getting recognized for, as much as she wants to honor her father and her family, is the, are the changes that she has made in. in yeah, in, absolutely. You know. She's published major books. Uh, she's publishing exciting new books, the, the Saladin Ahmed novel that came right. out back in January or February, whenever it was, which I liked a great deal, uh, Throne of the Crescent Moon. And yes, as you say, Nettie's novel, uh, I think, aren't they publishing, are they publishing um, Karen Lords or is that Del Rey? I don't know who's doing her next novel. It's one of those two, I think. So okay. anyway, hugely well-deserved. The least surprising Hugo of the night, Neil Gaiman swoops in and picks up a a Hugo for the Doctor's Wife for Best pre- Dramatic Presentation Short Form. Mm-hmm. Um, George picks up the Game of Thrones Hugo, which is nice for him. Mm-hmm. Um, Ursula Vernon picked up the Hugo for Digger for Best Graphic Story. I just was chatting with her in the dealer's room, and I, I was not familiar with Digger, uh, and my, my, my friend Stacy was 
a huge fan of hers. And okay. So we started looking at the stuff, and I thought, yeah, this is, this is interesting because this is where the fans more or less do something. You hear um, stories about people who organize their fandom. They organize their Twitter followers. They organize their Facebook people. Apparently, Ursula didn't even know she was eligible uh, <laughs> before she got nominated. That's fantastic. Well, I am delighted for her. I'm also delighted for our friends, colleagues, pals, and other things at the SF Encyclopedia, who, for my mind, in the most unsurprising win of the second most unsurprising win of the evening, picked up the Hugo for the Encyclopedia of Science Fiction third edition, in possibly its last ever eligible year as well. It could very well be because it's unclear as to whether there will ever be anything defined as a fourth edition. Um, I would suggest to you that unless they shut the website down, move to a new URL, redesign it, and rewrite a chunk of content, no. So I would suggest this is it. And it, that said, a, every single time this book has ever appeared or this collation of information has ever appeared, it has won the Hugo Award. And I think, and, yep. No, it just occurred to me at this very moment, if I had, if I had actually, well, actually, I had some pieces in the second edition. But if I had actually sent in all these pieces I was supposed to rewrite for the third edition, one of which is done, mm-hmm. I could have claimed that's partly mine, too. But I, oh, well. Hey, well, look, got we, three articles. Look, we both have articles. little slices of about 12 Locust Hugos, right? Well, that's true, too. Got, Unfortunately, they won't slice my bit off. Um... We should demand that. We should demand that that Hugo... By the way, the Hugo this year was gorgeous. There was yeah, a, I hate that. <laughs> I hate that it's gorgeous when we don't win. No, know, congratulations to that. No, no, I'm delighted. But. Yeah, I mean, the Science Fiction Encyclopedia and Locus all are collective efforts which yes. have been... Uh, which deserve to be recognized for a long time. And I guess... So, yeah, I, think, yeah. I, I, I do have... I do have your extra little mini Hugo pin, I think, which I should all, I should mail all this stuff to you. Just bring it to so we don't, Toronto. We don't bring, it, bring, it to, bring it to Toronto. Oh, I'll bring it to Toronto, absolutely. Yeah. Now, I should just say as well, as particular congratulations to Graham Slight, who was in attendance at uh, Chicago to pick up the Hugo, because I, this, he was you know, he's one of the newer people added to the uh, encyclopedia yeah. group over the last handful of years, and apparently he's been a driving engine behind it to get a lot of stuff done, so particular congratulations to him. Uh, in short story, Ken Liu with the Paper Menagerie for Best Short Story, mm-hmm. Best Novelette, and I was delighted to see this, uh, Charlie Jane Anders for Six Months, Three Days, uh, Kids Johnson for the, best, the Man Who Bridged the Mist, which you talked about, and Joe Walton for Among Others. So, so a good set of results, I think. Um, I will throw one thing back to you because I'm going to join some of this stuff up now. You, we uh-huh. talked about 15 years ago stuff that's still being read. Okay, your fiction winners uh, this year are, among others, Man Who Bridged the Mist, Six Month, Three Days, Paper Menagerie. 15 years ago, uh-huh. they were The Soul Selects Her Own Society by Connie Willis, a story that I th- that is probably going to be read for a good long time. Mm-hmm. And just as a comparison as well, uh, the other short story nominees were The Dead by Michael Swanwick and Gone by John Crowley, which I suspect will also be read for a good long period of time. Yeah, so. um, The novelette went to Bruce Sterling's Bicycle Re- Repairman, a story that's constantly in print 15 years later. Uh, other nominees include Beauty and the Opera or The Phantom Beast by Susie Charnas and Mountainways by Ursula Le Guin. So another strong ballot that year. Was it? Yeah. Uh, novella was won by George Martin for Blood of the Dragon. 
but the other uh, nominees included The Cost to Be Wise by Maureen McHugh, uh, Abandoned Place by Jerry Olshan, um, and maybe what Time Travelers Never Die by Devitt. So stories which are probably going to be remembered. Maureen McHugh is certainly kind of a classic already. Yeah, so, so, so I'd say, yeah, of that lot, well, see, I'd, I'd say the, the McHugh, the, the Sterling, the Willis, the Crowley are stories that will, that will be in print a further 15 years or 20 years from now, so. Um, and for novel, it went to Blue Mars that year. Oh, a, wow. book that, a book that I think is going to stay in, in print. I think, yeah. But the runners-up included Holy Fire by Bruce Sterling, possibly his best novel, and Memory by Lois Bujold. So, you know... It's interesting comparison to see how they're going to pan out. I think that looks like a stronger ballot than the 2012 ballot, frankly. But that just may be that weird trick of time. You know, we know that they, they stood up, so here we are, 15 years later, looking back. Now, before we segue, mm-hmm. do we want to talk about the rule changes to the Hugos briefly? Uh, yes, we probably should, because I don't understand all of. I don't understand how this happens, but okay. Um, there was no- Okay, so you explained this because even though I was there, I didn't go to the business meeting and... Okay, um, I haven't watched the business meeting and I don't follow it closely. I'm not going to pretend that I know all of the nuances and nor at this stage do I think, you know, sort of we need to do a special podcast about it. But there are a bunch of things that happened. The first was that with some amendment, the semi-prosine changes passed. Now, what that the, the principal effect of that is it has... I think to find fanzine, semi-prosine, and the the nominal idea of a prosine uh, right. based on income and revenue. You know, if if you earn nothing from the activities that you do, like say this podcast, then it's fan. If if at least one person earns revenue from it or something, I think then it's still okay to be a semi-prosine. But if people are making their, li- you know, a bunch of people are making their living from it, then it's a business, and so it's a prozine. So Locus becomes a prozine. Um, Interzone, I think, stays a fanzine because or semi-prozine because it doesn't um, earn, you know, pay anybody's full-time wages, that kind of thing. So that's the very rough breakdown. And that my question yeah. is, how many, how many, how many semi-prozines does that leave us with? Oh, still a bunch. I mean, um, oh, okay. I think Lightspeed still qualifies, maybe. I think. Uh, and that would mean also that that John's other magazine, Nightmare, will will qualify. Um, and there's a bunch of things on the web, uh, probably stuff like on spec and places like that. So there's, so there's stuff around. It remains a viable um, a viable category. I have to say, personally, I'm completely unconvinced by the need to have changed. But they made the change, and that's what happened. The next change was unexpectedly the business meeting voted to maintain the best graphic story category. It was set to expire this year and Uh and graphic novels slash comic books, whatever else would no longer have had a Hugo. Uh, The business meeting decided to continue it. So it's now a permanent category, not up to review. Um, And I guess all we can do is whilst it's not our main focus, we have to campaign for people to pay attention to graphic novels and and graphic stories and try and, promote them in a way, a way that people are aware and we get a really useful, meaningful ballot. Mm-hmm. One that's of interest to you and I directly and to some of our friends is that they also decided to uh, continue the best fan cast category. It will continue for another four years, I think it is, or three or four years, and then be reviewed mm-hmm. you know, in 2016 or something. So next year, the Cood Street Podcast, your favorite Hugo-nominated podcast, will indeed be eligible again for the Hugo Award, as will those other podcasts by people who we'll probably remember later. Um, so this is your chance already to, you know, if you're listening to, frankly, undo the injustice that's been done 
and give us the Hugo we really, really deserve. I suppose it would be pointless for me to spend lots of weeks in Texas during the next year, would it? I think like a campaign sort of thing. I think you're going to small oh, towns in Texas. Absolutely. I think you should you, you should get a campaign bus and you should get out there. You should shake hands, you should glad hand, all that kind of thing, so that we can bring home the podcast bacon because, you know... What are we talking about, Gary? We're not going to do that. We're probably not yeah. mentioning it again, but anyway. The, the category continues, and I'm pleased. I'm still not sure that I think there's a need to split fanzine and fan and fan cast, but now that they have, I'm happy it continues. And I then, think some of this is... Uh, there's there's always an element of conservatism in the business meetings, and I have attended a couple of them. And I think there's a sense, for example, to preserve the fanzine as a zine, um, and, and I suspect that's part of what that splitting has to do. Yes. Um, and, and the same thing may be going on with with the semi-prosing category, although I I don't follow the logic of that quite as much. Yeah. Oh, look, part of it was hard not to think that it was targeted to make a particular set of changes that some people wanted made. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it is what it is. Uh, I'm unconvinced that one of the assumptions around the semi-prosing category will actually follow through, which is that people will look at it and say, well, the editors of, of those those publications that are no longer eligible will now be looked at for best editor short form. Because I think it's a very different kind of profile and everything else, and I'm not sure the community will pick up on it, but we'll see. You know, we will see. No, we'll see. Um, and the final thing was there was a discussion to have a young adult Hugo, which was overturned, and I've not read the Stay. reasons for it. But mm. by a small small margin, the business meeting voted not to have a young adult Hugo. And I think the main reason why, reasons uh, were based around lack of clarity over how to actually define young adult consistent, consistently and an underpinning Hugo principle that says something that's eligible in one category shouldn't be eligible in another. And you could have a book like, say, Planes Runner by Ian MacDonald, a very fine and totally Hugo wor- award-worthy novel. Mm-hmm. Um, that would be up for best novel and best young adult novel, or best young adult, whatever it would be. And is that really a, a condition you want to create with the Hugo Awards? And an underlying principle is they don't. And, and the fact that uh, young adult novels have been on major on the novel Hugo ballot in the past, so so you're creating a situation where you, in effect. Uh, I, I, I didn't hear this argument, but I could understand this argument that you create a sort of second-class um, Hugo Best Novel Award uh, in, in, in the way that, well, in the way the Academy Awards, if you've got a really good actress in a movie uh, and you know she hasn't got a chance as best actress, you try to get nominated as yeah. best supporting actress. Sure, sure. And this this could very well be the same kind of thing. But certainly, if you know something like uh, Neil Gaiman's Graveyard Book comes along. Uh, I think that distinction, if it's that popular a book, that distinction goes out the window. Yeah. You know, and one thing they don't like to do is have the the adjudicators, the, the Hugo jury, having to make those decisions, or administrator, the Hugo administrator making those decisions. They want to go with the will of the electorate. It's a constant thing you keep hearing. And so that means that, you know, they're going to be sitting there going, well, we've got 4,000 votes for the Graveyard Book for Best Novel and 4,000 votes for the right. Graveyard Book for Best Young Adult Book. What do we do? And my guess is what's going to happen is they're going to tinker with it some more. They're going to talk about it in Reno. Uh, no, not, yeah, not Reno, in, um, in San Antonio. Mm-hmm. And then maybe that's where they will um, 
where they, they will push forward with it. Who knows? I, I, I suspect we've not, in fact, I'm sure we've not seen the last of it. A lot of people were very contemptuous of the business meeting for having decided not to, to proceed with it. I'm not sure that I would look at it that strongly, but you know, a lot of people, mm-hmm. oh my God, there's another example of the Hugo's bit brown, you know, drowning in old fartism. Um, well, I mean, there, there, is, there, there is some understandable uh, reasoning behind the argument that, uh, that, that the Hugo's, you, you mentioned, for example, something like uh, a planes runner. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and that's certainly a, a good example of a mainstream science fiction writer writing of what is a mainstream young adult novel. I suspect that there was some fear of the young adult community yeah. uh, edging into the, you know, the, the, the Suzanne Collinses of the world, sort of edging into territory that belongs to us, that belongs to science fiction writers. And, and pretty soon you're getting Hugo for your best novels for people that have really no interest much in the field at all. Yeah, I don't that, think yeah, that that's a realistic is, fear. Yeah, I don't think it is a really realistic fear, but, you know, people get upset about these things. Now, that said, the Hugos are done. Are we going mm-hmm. to um, San Antonio, Gary? I am waiting to decide. I mean, I think uh, probably um, – I'm, I, I, they're, 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 you know, our, our good friend Karen Burnham is organizing, I think, the academic track there. Oh, cool. Uh, San Antonio has uh, a really nice mayor who I've seen at the Democratic Convention on television <laughs> a few nights. Uh, it's got a beautiful river walk. Um, it'll be August, Gary, in Texas. It'll be August in Texas. That's the other thing. <laughs> uh, but I understand they have air conditioning in parts of Texas now. Um, really? So I don't know. I mean, it's it's, it's certainly uh, something I had seriously not thought about. Uh, London 2014, yes. That's a no-brainer. Everyone's going to that. I mean, if Everybody's I have to choose to between that and World Fantasy that year, I'm going to go to Worldcon, I'm sure. Yeah, um, I'm not sure if I can do two, two trips next year, but I'm strongly attracted to San Antonio after the way that I felt about not going to Chicago. Uh, but there is also a little thing in the back of my mind going, well, there's ReaderCon. You know, everybody reckons you'll love ReaderCon. You should go to ReaderCon. It'd be nice. Even after everything that happened, you should still go. Oh, I wanted. Uh, ah, ReaderCon. Yes. Oh, I forgot about this. One last thing about ShyCon. Mm-hmm. They didn't get their uh, harassment stuff right. Again. And like Rene Walling was running around and people were being harassed apparently and. Outrageous. I don't know. I, I don't know that he was. Was he guilty of something? Was there something about Yeah, him? well, the, 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 the reports that came out of it was there were some instances of him acting inappropriately. Now, I don't know if it's really true, and I actually saw an article or a blog post written by Laurie Mann, who was a friend of Mr. Walling's, uh-huh. saying that you know she felt that he was being very unjustly accused. It was all being blown out of all proportion. It's very hard for me to have an opinion on that because I have no sense from here of the, the proportion of it, but certainly it's been taken very seriously what he's done, and certainly he appears to keep doing it. So um, that's n- not a good thing. And I don't know. I, 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 I don't know him. I know friends of his uh, yeah. who I respect a great deal, some, some of whom had lunch and, and breakfast with him. You, I, I, you noticed this, there was a slight ripple that went through the audience when Joe Walton thanked him for providing the title for Among Others. Uh, so he has very loyal friends. I, I, I suspect that he's a fairly decent person, but I have no first – I mean, except yeah. for this thing, and this thing is fairly serious. Um, well, I think it's the, fact be- that, the fact that Chicon didn't get that right doesn't surprise me. They had uh, there was yeah. another blog post about their serious problems with handicapped access. Or That's unfortunate. This, uh, That's very bad. Which, which was really unfortunate, and could easily have been handled. Partly, it's because the nature of the hotel involves 
people in wheelchairs or disabled in other ways waiting long periods of time for yep. elevators to get to another elevator to wait for that elevator. Um, so I, it, it doesn't surprise me that there were some uh, flaws like that. Okay. Uh, yeah. I don't know about the specific instances you're talking about sure. with Renee Walton, but I will look them up as soon as we get off this. Well, hopefully it will all improve. But it does actually catch. I realize that you know what the theme for August, the end of August, early September is. It's cranky people. It's cranky old people. It's cranky young people who are, who haven't yet become cranky old people, but who probably will one day. You know, cranky young people on the internet saying that everything's broken and the Hugo results are are a farce. Cranky old people saying that the young stuff isn't exciting enough or it's whatever else. And mm. that is my little segue into the second item on our agenda, Gary. We have an agenda tonight. We should remind everybody, we have an agenda. We get Other people have agendas. we got an agenda. <laughs> I'm sure everybody else is so there. Dude, dude it, some people have scripts. You understand that, don't you? Some people have print. I know. They print them out and they look at them while they're talking. They do. I know. It's really quite disturbing. Anyway, right. so on the 3rd of September, Gary, an essay by Paul Kincaid, estimable, estimable British critic, award-winning British critic, was published by the LA Review of Books. And you can see it at lareviewofbooks.org, mm-hmm. uh, where Mr. Kincaid reviewed Gardner Dazois' Year's Best SF 29, Rich Horton's Year's Best SF and Fantasy 2012, and the Nebula Awards Showcase 2012. Onto the title, The Widening Guy, or 2012 Best of the Year Anthologies, uh-huh. which started with the uh, epithet. The best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. He thinks the field is exhausted and dying and useless, Gary. What do you think? Well, I don't think he quite says that. Um, he says that reading a lot of uh, years best, well, reading two years best anthologies, he was reading Rich Horton's, and by the way, it's just in parentheses, for the first time I met Rich Horton, uh, yep. our colleague at Locus, uh-huh. and your colleague in everything. Delightful, smart, intelligent. Yep. Uh, but he, So so um, Paul had read uh, Rich's Year's Best, and I guess Gardner Dozois's Year's yeah, Best, yeah, yeah. and described the experience, the, the feeling he said he came with from reading all these short stories was one of exhaustion, and not, this, not just the exhaustion of plowing through a lot of short stories, but a sense that the field itself was in a state of exhaustion. Yes. Um, and I don't think that means the field is dying. I think. Well, I mean, come he, on. No, he goes on. He says, there's no sense the writers have any real conviction about what they're doing. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a, you know, a direct quote. And he goes on and he talks about how basically, um, you know, they're no longer sure of the future. Therefore, an SF writer's option seems to be present a future that's magical or incomprehensible. We're unable to engage with the future. Uh, we're intellectually exhausted. Um, you know, there's less science fiction being published, he says, which I think is an interesting assertion. Um, and then he goes on to one of those interesting sort of one of those sort of side arguments you can have about what makes a science fiction story into a science fiction story. And if you can el- remove the element of the fantastic, then why would you make it a fantastic a fantastic right. story? Which I'm not sure is a very productive or useful line of argument at all. But well, I think the uh, no, I, I think it's not, and I think most of the arguments that he makes in this piece are arguments that uh, you could have made in any decade of science fiction's history, probably, and arguments that you could have made in any decade of um, of mainstream history. The science, the point he makes, that I think, is interesting and worth debating, yep. is that these 
these authors no longer believe in the future. The future of science fiction has failed them in some way. Uh, they're not trying to imagine new and different futures, so they're returning to older forums. And he mentions several very specific stories. Says some nice things about some individual stories, we should mm -hmm. say. He does sure, say yeah. nice things about the man who bridged the mist. Um, but, but those, that, those says it should just be straight fantasy, basically. Why has it got the science fiction in it? Right, exactly. And and that's that's not a new argument. Uh, no. It's not a new argument in terms of... Um, science fiction. It's not a new argument in terms of mainstream literature. There was a famous essay by John Barth mm -hmm. in 1967 called The Literature of Exhaustion. Mm -hmm. And it's pointed at, in his point in the mid-60s, and he was partly uh, promoting himself as, as a postmodern writer, and people saw this at the time as kind of an argument for postmodernism, was that the realistic novel had become self-imitative. It was dead. It was sort of digging up the same old bones again uh -huh. and again. And the only thing that could possibly save fiction was some kind of uh, you know radical experimentalism of the sort that he thought he was doing. In other words, what was saving fiction in his view back in the 60s was what we began to think of as fabulation. as the kind of thing that he was doing, Vonnegut was doing, and the kind of thing that science fiction and fantasy were doing with the new wave, although he didn't acknowledge that. Yeah. Uh, so if, if exhaustion means that you... Um, have used up all your material and are just recycling the same old material. Um, that's an argument, but it's, you know, but the realistic novel is still dominant almost 50 years after Barth's essay. It hasn't <laughs> died out. It's not, it was not a sign of death. Um, unfortunately, if anything, Barth lost that argument. And I think Paul's going to lose this argument. I think he will. I think he's also fallen prey to possibly a classic mistake in to, to my way of thinking because he talks about the, the, the at the end of his essay the way he illustrates the clarity of his argument is by saying you know, look none of the best of the stories in these books even if they are you know, are really truly worthy of being classed as the best the genre has produced i mean he, he, he highlights the valenti story the schroeder the McHugh, the hutchison the johnson the goss the link parker perhaps the tidhar stories as being the best stories mm. but you know, he says nothing stands up alongside the, a reprint story in the Nebula book, a 1972 Tiptree story, and I awoke and found me here on the cold hilled side. Right? He says nothing has right. that kind of engagement and energy and fascination, even though 40 years have passed. What I think he doesn't allow in that instance is that 40 years have passed. There's that reiteration of the, the story itself. He's not reading it fresh now. He's bringing 40 years of familiarity with the story to it, 40 years of context. We have no idea how in 40 years' time, as we were talking about the Hugos a moment ago, uh, people will look at the books, the stories that are in these books and say, were they, you know, do they still have really vibrant, vital energy or have they become somewhat tired and worn out, you know? The, the one thing... I well, the, but, but one answer to that also is you could go back and probably um, look at uh, your best anthologies from 40 years ago, and probably most of those stories are forgettable. Um, sure. Just, uh, in, in other words, taking one classic story from 40 years ago and comparing it with 50-some stories that happened to be published in the past year and were selected by editors is a little bit uh, disingenuous. Yeah, I think so. And I think I mean, one of the comments that's been directed at this is the suggestion that perhaps what's actually exhausted here might be, and I would understand this and have sympathy with it, Mr. Kincaid himself a little bit. 
that it's somewhat a symptom of the tired critic as much as it is a sign of a tired genre. Um, I, uh, Paul is a very good critic, and I, his, yes, he uh, is. I would recommend uh, I would recommend people uh, look at his actual uh, yes. look, look at his collection of essays called "What We Talk About When We Talk About Science Fiction." Yes, I think there is a sense that you get, and I I, I, I kind of understand this that you want a kick, you want you want the eyeball kicks, as they used to say. And, yeah. And when you're reading a bunch of stories in a year's best anthology, um, you're not going to get that every time out. No. And that's point A. Point B is he mentions the the term canonization as though a year's best anthology is an attempt at canonizing these stories. It's not. And you, as a as an editor sure. of one of these yourself, has to know that every year you have to come up with a bunch of new stories. Yes. And every year you're not going to come up with and I awoke me on the Cold Hill side. No. Uh, it simply doesn't happen. In other words, uh, one of the things I used to do, and I still do occasionally, uh, just out of curiosity, is pick up a, a, one of your anthologies or one of Gardner's or one of uh, mm-hmm. David's and Catherine's from uh, several years ago just to see how many story names I even recognize. Yes. And there are not very many. There no. are probably two or th- There's a story that will really stick with me. Um, I will pick up, I was talking to Daryl Gregory, um, and it occurred to me that, yeah, if I see the story, second person, present tense, 10 years from now, I'll remember that story. Yeah. Um, I, there are a lot of others like that, but not everyone. I mean, yeah, you cannot have every story in a year's best being that memorable. No. It's like, I remember where I was what, uh, and what I was doing when I read R&R by Lucia Shepard when it came out in Asimov's. Yeah, exactly. Now, for me, R&R is one of the great stories in the history of the field. Um, and they only come along, it's one of them a year, maybe. One every two years or three years. That's how it goes. Um, the one point which is not made by uh, Paul at all, and I completely agree with you, everything you've said about, about his writing, I think he's a very perceptive, intelligent critic, um, is that the field is... I, I don't think the field is exhausted, I think the field is exhausting right now because there's so much of it. I think, as you said, there is some merit to the, the, this discussion about how the field is going about finding a way forward because a bunch of people discuss this, this essay in several different places and you come down to this idea, well, okay, either you believe the field is exhausted or you don't. If you do, then, well, surely the great comeback is, okay, you've said the field is exhausted, so what does it need what, what is this vision that you must have or are you just being dissatisfied with what it is? Because it, it's it's not very helpful to turn around and say, it's useless, but I'm not going to tell you what's useful. So there's that. Yeah. And then, you know, uh, I, I think it is fair to say the future is a more complicated thing to think about in 2012 than it was in 1952. Because I think we're still trying to work out, and this is what you're seeing in the fiction maybe, we're still trying to work out how to think about the future. I mean, one of these things we've talked about, we're talking about fourth generation science fiction or whatever the other, the other week. Right. Um, and, you know, that's in there. We've talked about, about this return to um, inner, syst- inner sp- uh, system uh, space-based fiction uh, mm-hmm. with, with books like 2312, whatever else, right? And so, many of which aren't optimistic everything else. They're all maybe the nascent attempts to find out how we're going to reimagine the future so that we can tackle it. Um, I don't think the field's given up on it at all or is as exhausted with it as Paul suggests. I'm more optimistic. I do think it's struggling with it, but that's not the same thing. 
No, I think there's a dialogue going on in the field, and uh, I was been the the house guest who unfortunately got trapped here because of a plane plane cancellations for a couple of days was was Jeff Ryman, and I was talking to him a bit about mm. uh, mundane SF, which clearly was a movement that, in one sense, seemed to be extreme. His feeling is that mundane SF did what it needed to do, okay. which was cause people to pull back and think about what's possible. He, he sees a connection between mundane SF movement, for example, and this and the sol- sort of pulling back to the solar system fiction that we were talking about last week. Okay. Uh, that there is a kind of... But what that means is that this dialogue is still going on between science fiction as, for example, achievable technology sure. and science fiction as fantasy. Uh, one of Paul's complaints is that a lot of these stories could or possibly should have been fantasy stories. Yeah. Um, I think that's... Again, disingenuous, because um, when I think of Kish Johnson's The Man Who Bridged the Mists, which he says might as well have been, well, first of all, he says it should be a fantasy story, and then said it, well, it might as well have been set in Eastern Europe, and in Eastern Europe, and I mean, uh, it might be a Western story, yeah. Oh, exactly. Um, the, the tension that exists in that story, and it's clear to me after talking to her even on this podcast, that Kidge think, thinks of that as a science fiction story. She had worked out yeah. the biotics of that mist. Yeah. And... And so it, it clearly works that way. But the sort of tension between being a possible mainstream story, being a possible fantasy story, and being a possible science fiction story is part of what gives that story its energy. I agree. And I think there are any number of stories that if you go back not just to this year, and this is this is where I've, 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 I sort of fault Paul in this, is that he's looking at this year's group of stories as though they're different from any other year's group of stories. Yeah. And if you went back to let's say Robert Silverberg's Secret Sharer, well, of course he could have written that as a mainstream story. Joseph yeah. Conrad did write it as a mainstream story. Yes. His whole point was to create the dialogue between mainstream and science fiction. Yes. I mean, I, I, yes. And, and, and we've talked often here about, you know, as, as a positive thing, this, this blending of, of, of genre. Um, mm-hmm. I, I guess what seems to be somewhere at the heart of the view in Paul's essay is that that's, possibly a weakening of the genre and that what we're beginning to see is science fiction lose lose puff and but well it's almost like the way i'd see he sees it is science fiction is losing its forward momentum and is falling back into fantasy and being subsumed by fantasy um Um, and i'm not convinced if that if that is his argument i would not be convinced by it um and it's an argument that I've seen, again, sure. that we've seen before. One of the interesting exercises um, is to go back and look at the various Nebula Awards anthologies, which, uh, well, actually, he included one of the Nebula Awards anthologies in, in his review, and which, again, is a little bit awkward because, um, you know, the, the editor, as you know, of the Nebula Awards anthology has very limited parameters from which to choose, um, and... But the Nebula Awards anthologies for 20 years now have had introductions or essays or symposia or whatever, basically saying exactly the same thing that Paul is saying in this essay, yeah. that science fiction is exhausted, it's used up its, 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 uh, its, its energy, it needs something else, it hasn't seen anything new since Neuromancer. Um, and I, maybe it hasn't seen a revolution like this. I think there's a, there's a sense that what you want is another new wave. You want another cyberpunk. You want uh, a, another complete redirection of the field. And to some extent, 
you can't have that anymore because the field has tried all these different pathways. In other words, yeah. every time you reinvent the field, once you've got the new wave, the new wave is still there. People are still writing sure. new wave stories. Once you've got cyberpunk, it's still there. People are still writing cyberpunk stories. Steampunk. None of these accumulated experiments ever go away. And I don't think you can possibly realistically expect science fiction to invent radical new movements every 20 years or so. Yeah, I, th I think you're, you're probably right. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure that I'm convinced by the argument as well. I mean, he, yeah, he puts forward that science fiction has lost confidence in the future. He provides a couple of examples. I mean, I think he looks yeah. at Matter by Ian Banks, the culture novel, which is, it might as well have been a fantasy book. Mm -hmm. uh, talks about Gavin Grant's story, about Alan De Niro's story. And he goes like, no longer sure of the future. Therefore, an SF writer's options seem to be basically to write fantasy. Or write, I, writing stories in which literally anything can happen, and so it might yeah. as well be fantasy. I guess what I'd say is as well, I'm not sure that unsure of the future equates with unengaged with the future. And I think the field is still engaged with the future and is still trying to find ways to push forward in it as it represents that. That's well, the you mentioned, that, Paul, yeah, I, I, I agree. Um, and, and you mentioned that possibly it is a critic becoming exhausted with the field. And there was a sense, which is gone now, it's long gone. But there was a sense that there was a future implied in science fiction. Sure. It was essentially, it was mostly Heinlein's. Uh, it was a little bit of as, but you know, there was there was a sort of technological, um, sort of linear future that we could see going on. What Donald Wolheim, as a matter of fact, called a consensus cosmogony that the future, we know what the future history is going to be. Yeah. And and I think Paul's right. That future history is not going to happen. No. I mean, we, we are 40 years behind where we should be in that. We're not going to be doing interstellar travel. So, so to some extent, that future has failed. Yeah. I don't, think, I, I don't think that means that science fiction's future has failed. I think what people are doing is exploring different ways of thinking about futures. Um, yeah. And I think that model of the future has been largely abandoned by science fiction. Um, and I think you could also make the argument that some of the works which you and I like, including Stan Robinson's 2312 and Paul McCauley's The Quiet War and, yep. um, and, and various other works, are uh, there, there's, there's an element of nostalgia in them. There's an element of wanting to reclaim a future when we can actually colonize the solar system and build cities on Mercury and, uh, and, and that sort of thing. Let me ask you this quickly to interject. Is nostalgia mm -hmm. the poison that it's presented as by co some of the commentators in the field at the moment? Because that's what it's it's presented as, that, that nostalgia is poisoning science fiction. Um, you could make the same argument about politics, I suppose, that you know the idea of um, it's, 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 there's a, an election going on in the United States for the next couple of months. And this, this argument gets made about people who have actually a coherent vision for the future. Then what you're trying to do is return to a vision that's no longer viable. Um, there is... My argument there would be that nostalgia for nostalgia's sake yeah, can be pernicious. Um, people who want to recreate uh, the world of Ray Bradbury's rockets are just essentially writing fantasy. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think that uh, thinking in terms of engineering, is, 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 I'm going back to 2312, I'm going back to you know, Paul McCauley or Al Reynolds no, no. or um, any, any number we could talk about. That I think what they're doing is part of the aesthetic of science fiction is invention. Part of the aesthetic is imagining how you imagine things. Mm -hmm. And that is very much alive and hard science fiction, the kind of thing we've been talking about. But it may look nostalgic because 
you're returning to a, a you're returning to an era when we could imagine how these things could actually happen, and a lot of people are saying we cannot from the current situation of the world and the economy imagine how we will ever build a city on Mercury, sure, for sure. example. Let me. Uh, so in that sense, yeah. it's nostalgic, yeah. Okay, but let me reframe reframe the the notion that we're looking at. Uh-huh. Is what we're actually seeing when it's done well, because there's all kinds of other examples, but when it's done well, are we actually seeing science fiction writers faced with a future that it is difficult to approach in a simple manner, readdressing the toolkit of science fiction in an attempt to work out the solution to this puzzle? You know, in other words, uh, yes, we'll try new techniques, yes, we'll try new ideas, but we're going to have to go, we, we will go back to these tools that we've used in the past. And see if we can reapply them in a in, in a new way, uh, or reapply them to the new problems that we have in writing stories, and hopefully come up with a solution to this uh, this notion of how we engage in the future, how we imagine and define the future. Because that becomes the interesting question anyway, just, you know, plainly, you know, sort of if we have lost confidence in the future, if the future is confusing, if it is difficult to imagine, well, then it's how do we come up with a solution? I mean, I was having a conversation with this about this with uh, James Bradley. Uh-huh. And that was exactly my question back at him. It's like, okay, let's just allow that Paul, in his essay, was completely correct. Well, then, what's the solution? You know, what is what is you imagine is the next step? And to some degree, I think when you see Paul Macaulay writing The Quiet War, he's not just writing space opera. He's not just writing inner city, inner city, sorry, inner solar system science fiction. What he's doing is he is attempting to take the toolkit of science fiction and apply it to these problems. You know, and yes, what you will see in, in amongst it and around there mm-hmm. are other stories by other people that are not engaging with anything. They are simple entertainment, which is a fine thing and not a problem. But they're not part of pushing science fiction forward in the way that maybe Paul is. So. I guess I guess that's the problem. The overall problem I have with Paul's approach in the essay is is the assumption that science fiction is a project with yeah. with a sort of handbook and an agenda that there is one science fiction all science fiction writers are trying to do the same thing he mentions at one point I believe in the essay that the fundamental plot movement of science fiction has always been problem solving um, and to some extent that's true of classical science fiction I mean even I suppose you could say post-apocalyptic science fiction deals with problems of how to survive in, yeah. in an environment like that uh, and I, I, I think that that is that's what you've just described. That's still going on. I mean, even though the problems are not the ones we are likely to face any time in the future, the me- the me- mechanics of figuring out how to solve problems is still very much alive in science fiction. Um, I agree. And I, I guess what I'm saying is that science fiction is still in a very lively and inventive way dealing with the processes it's always dealt with. Mm-hmm. But those processes certainly aren't the same ones that Asimov and Einlein or or, or, or or Robert Forward or Hal Clement thought we would be dealing with. No. But, there, but there's still a lot of that ingenuity and uh, invention in science fiction. So, yeah, I think, I, think, I think the biggest mistake he makes in general in the essay is assuming that science fiction is still this unitary force sure. that it was when he and you were growing up. I agree. There is one thing, and I, would, I think we need to move on from this now, is I would thank Paul for the essay for one particular reason. It's probably sparked more interesting and engaged discussion about 
uh, the, you know, what, what the field is doing right now than any other piece of criticism I've seen in the last year or two. And that's, that's a good true, thing. And I, that's largely what he intended to do with that. Yeah. Uh, I don't know that it's going to change how next year's year's best look or what the perception of the best is, but I think it's very welcome. Well, it does raise an issue which I've raised as well, and I think it's a it, it's it's one which you have to face every year. Yeah. Uh, if you've got, um, I, I don't know what the total number is. He counts fifty-seven, and, and he counts the nebula, which is a little bit wrong. But if you look at the year's best anthology, you're talking probably seventy or eighty stories um, between uh, between yours and Gardner's and sure. Richler's and and, and and David and Catherine's. Um, there are you can easily have seventy or eighty best stories of the year without claiming that more than two or three of those are classics are going to be read in 10 or 15 years. I mean, if 70 yeah. good stories a year, seriously. I know, in, look, look. in literature in general, 70 good short stories a year is a pretty high percentage that's of a, stories. That's bizarre that. year. Look, I'm going to... How to put this? Yeah. It's Gardner's fault. It's Jim Frankel's fault, I think. Uh, and that's vastly simplifying it and pointing the finger on fairly, but I'll tell you why. Gardner and Jim, because it was Jim's idea, I think, originally, um, put forward the idea of the enormous best of the year. You know, right. the, the 300, 350,000 word best of the year. And it's been some time since there was a really short, tightly edited best of the year. I mean, even Hart, I mean, Hartwell's books are still a couple hundred thousand words, I would guess. My book's certainly a couple hundred thousand words, even though it combines what were supposed to be two 100,000 word books originally, because they were supposed to be the tightly edited ones, and it looks a bit more sprawling than it does because they are combined, and I'm sure it's similar with Rich and whoever else. Right. Um, nobody does books the way Terry Carr and Don Walheim... I was going to say, are, Terry Carr had like a dozen stories in his books, as I recall. That's right. Like that. And I think there's a, a commercial feeling that if you put out a best of the year with 12 stories in it, apart from the fact you would automatically be knocking out the best novellas of the year, um, right. that people would be dissatisfied commercially. You know, I've, I've got the, uh, the, the beginnings of the table of contents for my best of the year for 2012, looking at it now as I talk to you. Yeah. And I've allowed for 30-odd spots in the book. Um, do I think all of those 30 stories will be good? Yes, I do, because that's why I'm putting the book together. Mm. Do I think all of them will be seen in 10 years' time as the best of the year? I don't know. I think a handful of them will, because I think a, thought of, a handful of them are truly outstanding. And I think the rest are very good. And you get to this point where you're going, I'm, I'm doing a book that's 200,000 words long, not I'm doing a book that contains the stories that will necessarily be remembered in 10 years' time. And I'm sure everybody would disagree and get all kind of disingenuous about it, probably. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, you, I, I don't know that Gardner himself, and we've never discussed it, so I'm just imagining, would say that all 300,000 words of his book are equally brilliant and equally memorable. He's got a 300,000-word book to put together. That's my point, yeah. And, and essentially, um, the way I've always read the best of the year, I've, I've always objected to the best of the year. Mm. As a term, because huh. because uh, and and here's here's a defense of the Frankel. Uh, I think you're right because I think Jim put together the best science, best fantasy and horror. Mm. Yeah, um, is that one one defense of that is that in the last twenty or thirty or forty years, the science fiction and fantasy and sort of in between fields have become so divergent and so atomized that you 
you don't have any sense of what the core of science fiction is anymore. To some extent, you have to represent different strains. Indeed. You have to think, okay, do we, do we need to, because you could easily do the best steampunk of the year, best science fiction slash horror of the year, best space opera of the year, and so forth. To some extent, you want to represent the breadth of the field. Yeah. Uh, that's almost, that almost works against the idea of choosing the absolute best stories. What if all the best stories in a given year, let's take it, let's take Ellen Dattler. Yeah. What if all the really best stories in, in a year in horror were vampire stories? Yes. You can't do it. You've got to get a broader representation of the field. Absolutely, indeed. I think there's some truth to that. There really is. Uh, and, and one of the purposes of these books, and I think I, I actually, again, I sympathize with Paul's exhaustion uh, or sense of exhaustion. One of the purposes of these is to give is, is, is not for a pile of bests of the years to be entertaining to read, you know, um, mm. which might sound like an odd thing to say. Each book is intended to entertain. My book is intended to be my perception of the best of the year and a, a, a portrait of the year and to be entertaining reading. But right. my book is not designed to be read with Riches and Gardner's and David's and Paula's and Ellen's and everybody else. That's a decision the reader is making to do. I can only control what's, what happens within the pages of my book. Well, this is why I've, I, I, for years I've reviewed all the best of the years, except I missed some last year, I guess. And it's... It really comes down to almost like reading a magazine. If you like Gordon Van Gelder's editing or if you like Sheila Williams's editing, that's yeah. the magazine you'll read. Yeah. Um, ideally, everybody, if you want to know what's going on in short fiction in the year and you don't read all the magazines month to month, I depend on all the year's best anthologies to, to get your different uh, angles on it. Yeah. But I, and I, I don't necessarily think – there are stories in everybody's anthologies, and, and I've talked about this, that I'm thinking, why are they there? Yeah, and then there are other stories that show up in everybody's year's best anthologies, mm -hmm. and I know exactly why they're there. Yes. But what, what, I think what you really the best, the most you can hope for is to get a good picture of what the field was doing well. Yes. Uh, during the year, but no, you're not putting together group uh -huh. classics, and I think that's the mistake. That um, if you take one, uh, and, and it's not Paul's mistake. It's partly because the Los Angeles Review of Books, which by the way is doing a marvelous job of covering science fiction and fantasy. For a mainstream publication, mm, and, yeah. uh, and, and and I think uh, and, 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 and you don't you don't mention that because you write for them. I wrote <laughs> one thing for them. I, I, I apologize to Liza. Okay, I, I was unfaithful for one night. I wrote a review. Of a very good review. It was an essay. It was it was it was a it was you know twenty five hundred words on one book, which I don't have room to do in Locus. <laughs> But it is, yeah, it I is think it was good, long, Gary. I already caught it. <laughs> <laughs> Which is why I didn't fact, get it. I'm actually in the middle of editing your column at the moment. But anyway, because <laughs> I'm running late. Speaking oh, of running late, Gary, guess what? Are we running late? Dude, we're over the hour. We're over an hour already. To, 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 meet, short, to meet the Charles Tan average, we've got four minutes to go. And we had a whole other item to talk about. Let's get to that other item. We had two other items to talk about if you're talking about these fiction Actual oh, fiction you want well, to talk about? Well, okay. Well, I d yeah. You see, I had this idea, and I, I don't know if we got the time or not, so let's think about it. Let's, let's uh, talk about it a little bit. As you know, Gary, I'm busy reading for the best of the year. And right. That means I've been reading a bunch of short stories, and I read two steampunk stories, which I thought were interesting and which were worth talking about together. And I agree. And you sent them to me, and I read them, and I'm going to be really disappointed if we don't get to 
say something about Okay, them. let's start talking about them because I think they say something about where steampunk is and they connect nicely to our conversation with the wonderful Jennifer Valentine just a yeah. handful of weeks ago. So the two stories that, that I came across were Nick Mamatis's Arbeitskraft, I think is how you pronounce it, which was originally published in Sean Wallace's The Mammoth Book of Steampunk earlier this year. Mm-hmm. A very interesting novelette. And Caitlin R. Kiernan's Goggles circa 1910, which will come out a little bit later in the year in Anne Vandermeer's Steampunk 3, Steampunk Revolution. The first story is... Ha! Ah, it's at the end of the steampunk era. It's a, an attempt to recreate the mind of Marx in a machine, Karl Marx. Mm. Whereas the, in fact, similarly, the, the Kiernan story is set at the, at the end of the era of steampunk and is about the, 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 the vicious impact of the death of the steampunk era, I guess. So what do you think? Of these two stories, I, 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 apparently, I mean, you had read both of, uh, of these anthologies, and it fascinates me as to why you chose these two particular stories. Because what struck me about them is what are they doing that's new and different with steampunk? And one of the things that struck me in the uh, Mamata story is that the story is cast partly in the form of a critique of steampunk itself. Yes, I mean, it, it really it's narrated by Friedrich Engels. Mm-hmm. It looks like uh, a Marxist critique of the idea of steampunk. Steam actually functions in it in all all sorts of interesting ways because the narrator talks about steam in the way that people in the 1940s and 1950s talked about atomic power. But it raises the issue, and and it it raises the issue in a very dramatic, um, actually melodramatic way, about the social cost of what a steampunk revolution might have looked like. Absolutely. Um, with these horrible, it basically combines a, a nightmare. It combines steampunk with a nightmare kind of Victorian scenario, scenario like Charles Dickens' Hard Times, with Hans Christian Andersen's The Little Match Girl. Very much, things. yeah, very much. And so and then you, you you have these women who are being terribly damaged by, if you like, the steampunk industrial revolution, the impact of actually building the steampunk world, because you know. I, th- I think this is the thing which we discussed briefly with Genevieve. Uh, it, you know, we see lots and lots of shiny cogs and people running around with helmets on and not an awful lot of what it actually takes to build, create, and run a steampunk world and what the, act- the, the actual impact of that is on the rest of the society that isn't getting the let's, let's bop around in a Zeppelin kind of a, an exper- life experience. And, and, and Genevieve was talking about that too. That steampunk is not is not a sort of false utopia. Uh, the flaw, the the thing that I had a hard time accepting in Nick's story, uh, which is one of the better stories of his that I've read. I've not read a lot of his short fiction. He's a very good writer, but this is really thoughtful. Uh, but still, you have a technology which has built the Babbage engine. He's uh, he's now building a. Uh, uh, dialectical engine to recreate the mind of Marx. It's a it's a fairly sophisticated. Era, which still depends on the manufacture of phosphorus matches. <laughs> I kept thinking they must have had other technologies for light and flame besides building factories for phosphorus matches. But he needed that for the dramatic impact he was going to get. Uh, well, 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 he certainly oh. needed something that was going to physically damage, pe- you know, people, uh, workers. Mm. 
um, so that there was an engine for the story. Because without that, there isn't you know sort of an engine to the story. It loses its sense of horror. It loses its sense of drama. And what I, it presents really is horrific. And and as you say, melodramatic. And in, in it's, it's, it's very way. it's very disturbing. Yeah. And 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 it's, 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 it's the story gains in power. I was surprised at the story uh, rhetorically because. It began with what looked like an almost um, an essay on Marxism and steampunk. And yeah. there, was, there were no characters in it in the beginning at all. Yeah. Uh, there, was, there was Ingalls pretending to burn all of Marx's stuff and being pursued by the police. But it was, it was, I thought this is a very fascinating abstract essay. And then suddenly, wham, you get this, uh, this horribly melodramatic um, situation of, of, of these abused children mm -hmm. uh, in a way that looked a lot like a Victorian realistic novel. And one of the things that I liked about it, not only that he was using Marx and, and, and Ingalls as, as, as kind of a model, but that he was looking at some of the Victorian realistic exposés of this sort of thing. I mean, uh, people who are talking about steampunk really ought to read Dickens. They ought to read uh, there's a, a Theodore Dreiser's novel, Sister Carrie, yeah. um, deals with women working in a um, uh, a, a, a millinery uh, factory, you know, and they, these they have to keep up these rapid sewing machines. There's an absolutely horrifying scene where I don't think it's Sister Carrie, but I think a friend of hers, you know, stitches her hand all the way up between the thumb and the um, forefinger, and that happened all the time. Uh, yeah. In other words, there there were real nightmares implicit in the steampunk era, and the idea that we were going to have zeppelins and um, and 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 Babbage difference engines and so forth and so on doesn't make that any less horrific. Um, I think Caitlin's story takes it even a step further, which is that steampunk could have led to its own apocalypse. Well, yeah, I mean, I was thinking. I mean, this is this is Caitlin Kiernan casting steampunk in the same space as um, Paolo Bacigalupi's Yellow Calorie Man. You know, mm -hmm. uh, it's turning around and saying, okay, if we're going to have the kind of steampunk industrial world that we imagine, it could, it could, would, slash, might result in the environmental collapse we fear today. Mm -hmm. And so we have a group of children huddled in a enclosed environment where they're kept, you know, you know basically walled off from the environment, which is, which is collapsed, and where they go out in search of food and are you know, pursued by wild dogs, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. and it's vicious and it's brutal, um, and really sort of on stinting in its portrayal of of a post steampunk industrial revolutionary world. I think, and really quite quite stunning. I mean, very strong science fiction story. I thought mm, it's a very strong science fiction horror story. Which again, yes. to go back to what we were talking about, uh, Paul Kincaid's essay is one of the areas where there's a lot of room for energy. I mean, uh, Caitlin has done this before, and even movies like Alien do it, but what it's essentially saying is that you've combined the steampunk conceit um, with the post-apocalyptic conceit, and you realize that you can have an environment um, like like any number of post-apocalyptic environments. So the, the Cormac McCarthy's The Road came up. This is a world which is worse than The Road, not only because of the feral dogs, but because of the nitric acid rain yeah. and so yeah. forth. And that it emerges not out of our technology, but out of, if you make some references to Tesla. And interestingly enough, there's an odd connection between that story and um, Scott Westerville's Goliath series. Mm -hmm. uh, Goliath was the last one, the Leviathan series. Yeah. Uh, which ended up with, didn't quite see it, but you know Tesla's ideas of super weapons had they been realized, 
could have led to the world that Caitlin Kiernan describes in this. Yeah. So there's enough science fiction thinking about it. And what, what, I, what interests me about that story in particular is that she thought about the kind of technology which, was, which people were extrapolating about around 1911 when the story mm -hmm. started, turn of the century. In other words, people thought, okay, maybe Tesla's energy, projected energy thing will work and will solve all the problems. Uh, she reversed that and made an apocalypse out of it. Um, and so, so steampunk in that sense, if you actually look at historical origins for it, can be endlessly fascinating. Yeah. Nick Amatas looks at Marx and Engels as a way of approaching steampunk. Uh, and, and Caitlin is looking at, at Tesla and, um, and well, horrible post-apocalyptic environments as a way of approaching steampunk. Which strikes me that even though this is a, a genre which... I even sometimes feel it's just cliche bound. Okay, enough with the Zeppelin, you know, yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And that there are new things to be done and new ways of approaching it. And that I thought was refreshing. I have to agree with you. I mean, I had thought that I, if I hadn't seen everything that steampunk had to offer, I thought I'd seen most of it. And I thought it, it was de definitely running towards light entertainment with very little substance to it i guess um and these two stories help convince me that it, i don't know what's well, the funny thing is they engaged me and i think they're very strong stories and i'm very glad mm -hmm. i read them but they both are to me in a way the end of steampunk stories uh, i i suspect caitlin might describe goggle circa 1910 as her steam i think she did in fact describe it as the last steampunk story she'll write and as, wow. you know, the, the, the steampunk killer. And there's an element about these, because these, these are the ones that are sort of like, you know, sort of whenever, there's this element of stories, and Genevieve's written them as well, and you can see it in the story yeah. with the long, long title that I reprinted a few years ago, that there's, it's bringing that realist, you know, the realism into it, and, and sort of puncturing the romance a little bit, so that we're sort of looking at it with, with clearer eyes. Right. Um, I'm not sure how much else there is to be done, but I think these are both really strong stories. I was really impressed and interested to come across them so close together. Well, I, mean, it, 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 I, I think it, it says something about steampunk, but it doesn't say much more about steampunk than it does about any other subgenre or any theme in science fiction, which is that, I mean, steampunk has become a fashion trend, obviously, yes. in all sorts of ways. Yes. Um, but there are still innovative ways of looking at it, just like there are still innovative ways of looking at space opera or dystopia sure. or whatever else it is. Uh, it's, 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 it's not the challenge of science fiction. It's a challenge of literature. I mean, yeah. you know, the fact is, again, we, we think that science fiction is um, limited to a few themes. Well, so is all fiction. I mean, it's, yes. it's entirely possible, as much as people might not like The New Yorker, it's entirely possible for somebody to write a brand new story about uh, middle-class couples in Vermont getting divorced, and it'll be a brilliant story. Yeah. Uh, there are stories about family, stories about death, sex, and love. I mean, it's not. <laughs> so, so, and and you could absolutely say, well, yeah, uh, we're exhausted. We're only dealing with these same themes. But my question, and my question to Paul is, what else you got? I guess so. I mean, I I think that Caitlin and Nick show that we still have stuff to say, and yeah. we can. And, and, and I mean, and I would add to you know, the other, and there's nothing wrong with that other stuff too. I mean, I read the um, 
Kelly Link Gavin Grant steampunk anthology last year and loved it. And some of that was just rousing good entertainment, and there's nothing wrong with that either. It's just you need the salt of these stories, stories like this, in the in in the recipe that we're you know, you know the food we're consuming to give it flavor and texture and depth. And these well, helped to do that. I, yeah, yeah. The one thing my students always say when I bring this kind of thing up is, "What's wrong with entertainment? Uh, what's wrong with having fun?" And I don't have a good answer to that. Not everything you need you needs to advance the genre needs to. Uh, I have an answer to it, Gary. The answer is there's nothing wrong with it at all. It's just it shouldn't be everything. It shouldn't be everything. I totally agree. Um, but even you, your year's best anthologies, and I, I would I point this out, some of the stories are just fun. Yes. And some of them are radical. That's right. I mean, uh, well, th- okay. Neither you nor I are every reader because there is no such thing as every reader. But I do read because I enjoy it, Gary. And mm-hmm. that means sometimes I want to read a rollicking good romp, and sometimes I want something pithy and smart and intelligent. You know, I keep, you know, I will look at everything that Caitlin Kiernan publishes, mm-hmm. and I don't expect all of it to be a rollicking good read. And nor, I'm sure, would she, I'm sure she wouldn't be horrified to hear me say that. But mm-hmm. I, I want Caitlin Kiernan in my reading diet because of what she gives me. It's smart and intelligent and pithy and, and difficult. Not like difficult to read, but but challenging, and that's what you want. You know, you, we should all have that, and it helps keeps us engaged and interested, and and gives the field sort of texture. If all we got was sort of endless lolloping space operas with you know sort of people zipping around being successful, mm-hmm. we'd all get a bit bored. But it's nice to have one every now and again as well. There, there are times when I crave just a, a big dumb space adventure, and I'm delighted to get one. And there are very very good ones. And the point where I disagree with Paul that ties around to this is sometimes a nostalgic lolloping good space opera is part of the best of the genre it may be the newest sorry it may not be the newest it may not be the most challenging or the most inventive but to be the best you don't necessarily have to be that all the time you can be a really 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 good i mean it's like if you go to a restaurant if you get a great hamburger mm-hmm. it's a great hamburger it may not be molecular gastronomy you know, it may not be Heston Blumenthal, but you don't need everything to be Heston Blumenthal all the time. And it doesn't mean make that great burger less great that it's not a Heston Blumenthal burger. Oh, I agree. Or I, I, I didn't even get a chance to talk to you about my science fiction meal at Alinea, which is one of the molecular gastronomy restaurants here. Um, you're right. You you can't afford to have that kind of a meal every night, and you probably wouldn't want to have that kind of a meal no. every night. But I think that's always been true of all kinds of fiction. Yes. There is, in, uh, to, to use the sort of metaphor that uh, Thomas Kuhn's used in the structure of scientific revolution, if you have normal science and you have re- revolutionary science, any kind of fiction is sustained day-to-day by normal fiction, by well-performed versions of what we've seen before. Whether it's an adventure story or a, or a romance or... Look at mysteries. Mm. I mean, people make terrific reputations writing mysteries, Sue Grafton is an example, by performing the same thing over and over again in a very entertaining and slick manner. And we want yeah. that. Robert Park used to do the suspense. And then occasionally you'll get a mystery that is mind-blowing and you haven't thought about it before. Yeah. I mean, the one I'm teaching now is Mystic River by Dennis Lehane. Um, the same thing's true with science fiction. Um, yeah. yeah, you don't <clears throat> you, you, you don't want the molecular gastronomy every time. out. You want some people who write fun stories because... That's part of the history of the genre as well. It's yes. part of why people read the genre. I think so, sir. 
And on that note, Gary, I think we should wind up. We should probably wind up because we're probably over the Charlestown limit now. We are well over the Charlestown limit. We're at about an hour and 20 minutes, Gary, which for us definitely constitutes rambling. Oh, we're going to have to start talking about the Charlestown limit as as the (laughs) Bose-Einstein. It is. It Um, is. It is the, the, the tan rambling whatever. Yes. Right. Well, on that cheery yep. note, then, you had a good time in, in Chicago at, at Worldcon. Lovely people won awards. Good stories were published. The world mm-hmm. continues on, and we'll do this again next week. And we'll do this again next week, so we'll look forward to talking to you. I look forward to it very much indeed. Until then, I'll see you, talk to you next week. Oh, okay, good night. Okay, bye.